Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. We're moving back to the patient side today with a rare opportunity to interview Tim Lash, president of West Health, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to building value-based care solutions for seniors. Let me explain, as this is a truly unique organization, funded solely by the successful entrepreneurs and philanthropists Gary and Mary West. The nonprofit Gary and Mess Foundation is an outcomes-based foundation dedicated to lowering the cost of healthcare in order to enable seniors to successfully age in place with access to high-quality, affordable healthcare. Since 2006, this foundation has awarded over 700 grants, totaling more than $280 million to nonprofit organizations and other institutions that share this successful aging mission. Tim Lash is well-positioned as their president. He has been an entrepreneurial leader and chief executive in healthcare and philanthropy with extensive success shaping and executing disruptive delivery models, collaborative stakeholder groups, policy change, growth platforms, as well as successful acquisitions and equity investments. Welcome to the show, Tim. Larry, great to be here. How are you? I am great. Looking forward to these holidays like everybody else is. I typically start all of my podcasts by allowing the guests to tell the listeners about themselves. Tell us about your career. How did you become who you are? Sure, Larry. So, you know, I think like many of us, I've, um, you know, I, I've spent my career in, in healthcare, just about 25 years now. And so have had ample opportunities to uh, learn some things, make some mistakes, and 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 hopefully not the same ones multiple times. Uh, but my, my career started in management consulting, uh, focused on healthcare, doing strategy assessments and product opportunity assessments for medical device and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, after that, uh, I went back to graduate school, get a formal training in finance, and jumped uh, to the medical device sector, working for Johnson & Johnson, where I had a, a number of uh, increasingly leadership roles focused on mergers and acquisitions uh, in the cardiovascular space, minimally invasive surgery, and then ultimately uh, as an executive as part of the uh, M&A team uh, for one of their device sectors, which was about a $13 billion group. Learned a lot uh, while I was there, uh, but I think one of the the, the, the key learnings, and J&J is a great company, uh, but Madonna has disrupted herself many times over the decades. It's really hard for large multinational companies to do the same. And, you know, I, I have a passion for healthcare, but I have a passion also for rethinking and reimagining how value is exchanged in the system and, and how we can deploy what are limited resources to help uh, patients in the most effective way possible. Uh, and so I was at a crossroads uh, and started looking for opportunities uh, that would allow me to do just that. And I, I, I found myself moving from the East Coast to the West Coast to join West Health, which, as you said, is a nonprofit organization that leverages outcome-based grant funding, applied medical research and policy research to, to rethink and, and reimagine public policy for healthcare, the delivery of healthcare, and you know ultimately the payment uh, for, for healthcare to the benefit of uh, our nation's seniors. Your statement certainly emphasizes the passion you bring uh, to your role there at, at West Health. You have three braided entities that work together, your foundation, your institute, and your policy center. Tell us about this. 
That's great. So, you know, I, at, at the highest level, I think what's really important to understand is that we were founded uh, by Gary and Mary West. So West is a, a direction, uh, you know, on a compass, but it also is a, is a family based here in, in San Diego, uh, visionary philanthropists that solely fund uh, our braided entities, the Gary and Mary West Foundation, the West Health Institute, and the West Health Policy Center. I'll tell you about each. But the fact that we are solely funded gives us incredible independence. Uh, we, we certainly have perspective around how we think healthcare delivery and healthcare policy uh, needs to be advanced. Uh, but we're not beholden to outside funders or their agenda. Uh, and I think, you know, that independence really is is, is quite uh, liberating, right? And and uh, and can be leveraged by our team of experts as we advance the work that we do. Uh, so I'll start with the mothership, the Gary and Mary West Foundation, uh, which, is, as you said, Larry, uh, has deployed uh, over 700 outcome-based grants uh, through its inception to broadly advance something that we call successful aging. And so when we think about healthcare, uh, we don't just think about the medical side of things. We think holistically about an individual, where they want to be, uh, which is in the community, uh, how they interface with the, the medical side of healthcare, right? And then, you know, how they interface with other social supports and services, right? So that they can be, uh, you know, as healthy, uh, you know, as long as possible, but that they also have their dignity, right? And quality of life. And the, the at its core, uh, the foundation looks to deploy its resources to advance that, the successful aging of seniors. And we're all aging every single day. Uh, if we stop aging, there's generally a, a, a problem uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that needs to be addressed. And so in aligning the delivery of care uh, and outcomes for, for seniors, uh, we're, we're making you know, a, a very large impact on a needy population, uh, but the benefit accrues uh, really to, to all of us, even, even those that might not have reached the age of, uh, of 65. The way that we achieve that impact is really uh, quite unique. Most foundations across the country deploy a typical grant-based model where they find you know, organizations that might be mission aligned or that they feel are doing good work and they provide them with monetary resources uh, as well as you know, some expertise in, in, in some instances. The Gary Mary West Foundation takes a different approach and, and I'd like to describe it as a very highly leveraged approach. So the resources from the foundation primarily flow through two entities, the West Health Institute, which is an applied medical research organization, as well as the West Health Policy Center, which is based in Washington, D.C. And I call it a leveraged model because we take the vision of the foundation front trustees uh, and their expertise, we take the resources of the foundation, and then we flow them through an entity where those dollars are combined with decades of experience of RNs and physicians and system engineers and people with background in data science and backgrounds in telemedicine. And so we're not just deploying dollars and furtherance for reimagining, you know, healthcare through outside organizations. We're taking those dollars and we're making them smart dollars. And we do the same thing as the dollars flow through the policy center. And that that model has, I think, you know, really allowed us to not only differentiate ourselves, uh, you know, versus, you know, others that might be actively investing, uh, you know, to improve healthcare in, in the U.S., uh, but it, it, it allows us uh, to have the highest impact for every dollar that we deploy. We have done a lot of work around geriatric emergency medicine. The emergency department is the last uh, exit, so to say, on the highway before we reach the toll, right? You know, yeah. which would be an admission. 
And we've successfully collaborated with the American College of Emergency Physicians to stand up a national accreditation program at three levels, like trauma, uh, level one, level two, level three, that has revolutionized how emergency departments across the country think about the care of older adults. Big problem, right? You require, you know, sort of, you know, a, a comprehensive approach. Uh, we've also done a lot of work around the high cost of prescription drugs, and on the on the policy side, have been we're very engaged in the work around Medicare directly negotiating the price of prescriptions for the benefit of the of the Medicare enrollees uh, across the across this country, providing technical support as well as research at a public policy level, as well as patient research uh, to ensure. Uh, that policymakers really understand the true pain points, you know, that that Americans uh, are realizing when they're at the pharmacy, uh, paying, you know, often exuberant prices for uh, for their prescription drugs, and that that perspective uh, was then translated into smart policy that could really make a difference. They're just two examples, but I think, Larry, you would agree these, you know, they're, they're illustrative of uh, of big problems that require a uh, you know a broad and coordinated approach uh, that we're able to achieve because we leverage our dollars in addition to the expertise and, and perspective of a, uh, you know, a very talented team. My, my first thought is define senior. Uh, it, so you, you mentioned the number 65. The patients you're focusing on, though, I would imagine are much older than that these days. Our, our definition of senior has to be advanced in age more than it has been in the past. Yeah, you know, Larry, I think that's, um, I think at the highest level, that is true, uh, that the advances in, you know, medical science, as well as, uh, you know, work that's been done over the decades around longevity, right, you know, have by and large allowed uh, people to stay, in some cases, you know, healthier. But when we think about aging, I, I, I think it's important not to uh, you know, think about a hard age cutoff. If 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 you're an individual that that has food insecurity, that you might not have been, uh, you know, so lucky to you know sort of preserved your health, uh, you know, well past your fifties, uh, and and you're struggling in in need of care that's perhaps uh, more congruent with your your health needs, even if you're in your fifties, and perhaps more care coordination that per se a senior center can provide. Uh, it's important not to be asking people for their licenses, right? You know, to mm. say, well, are you six? 65. 65 mm -hmm. is, you know, important as we think about, you know, Medicare and, and you know, sort of, you know, other benefits, uh, you know, that, that that might be available. But I, I think it's important to meet people, you know, sort of, you know, where they are, right, you know, both from a health perspective, regardless of their age, and think about, you know, solutions in that context. Now, that, that being said, uh, as we think about bending the cost curve, uh, you know, uh, in America, you know, for healthcare, it is true, right, that, you know, as people age past their 60s and into their 70s uh, and into their 80s, uh, that we see a disproportionate amount of, uh, of spend. Uh, and, and as we think about, you know, value-based care solutions, uh, it, is, it is really important to go after, you know, those areas uh, where perhaps you have the most bang for your buck, both in terms mm -hmm. of the human impact as well as the dollar impact. And I think one program that, uh, that, that I'd like to highlight, something called PACE, uh, Larry, the Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which mm -hmm. if uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, this is a program that leverages both Medicaid and Medicare dollars, so state dollars and federal dollars, to keep seniors that would otherwise be in an institutional setting, uh, so receiving custodial care, 
at home. Uh, it does that in a fully capitated risk-based model. So PACE programs throughout the country, they take funding uh, on, a, on a monthly basis per patient, per member, you know, from the state uh, and, and from the federal government. And they have a great amount of latitude and longitude, right, in terms of how those dollars are deployed to support a patient on their medical side, as well as, you know, just their, uh, you know, their, their, their needs in terms of activities of daily living in their home to keep them uh, out of uh, a custodial setting. And the, the Gary Mary West uh, Foundation four years ago uh, stood up the Gary Mary West PACE program uh, in North County, San Diego. And the vision here was, uh, one, uh, to make a meaningful impact for seniors in San Diego. We now serve over 350 very high-risk, high-need uh, participants, but also to have a living laboratory I, I would say, an enriched environment, right, where we can study what works and what doesn't work uh, in a value-based setting for this high-need uh, population. And we're now, uh, you know, in partnerships with programs across the country, as well as the National PACE Association to leverage those learnings that were developed uh, caring for this high-need population to inform other programs on how they can make real-time decisions, right, that can avoid hospitalizations and leverage things like telehealth, to uh, you know, move the data and not the and not the individual. And uh, I would say those learnings are not just accruing to pace programs, but as we think about bending the cost curve in this country, we have to think about how value is exchanged in a different way. And I and you know, I said in my career, you know, that's been a defining uh, objective. Uh, and I and I think you know, looking at uh, aligning incentives and and capitated models, right? Uh, you know, are very fruitful areas uh, that we can um, you know explore and expand as a country, right, to ensure that we're getting the very best outcomes at the appropriate cost uh, for all of us, not just for seniors. What type of interactions do you actually have on the provider side? Are you directly contracting with primary care groups, specialty groups? Give us an yeah. idea of how you run the nuts and bolts there. Sure. So one one of my one of the hats that I wear is I am CEO of the of the Gary Mary West program, uh, Pace program. We have a you know we have a, a tremendous leadership team there that that manage things on a day to day basis. But we essentially operate a full primary care practice that is staffed by physicians as well as advanced practice you know, sort of nurses uh, and and physician uh, assistants. We operate a day center as well as uh, a rehab clinic um, for physical rehab, occupational therapy speech. We also employ mental health professionals to, to provide, you know, for the mental health needs of the, of the participants. That represents the core of the program, which really allows us to look at the whole delivery model, right? Uh, you know, and the, the 360 degrees of the medical needs of an individual. There's an interdisciplinary team, Larry, that's responsible for all of that. But obviously, the the core primary care needs, as well as you know, PT, OT, et cetera, they don't meet all of the needs of someone that might otherwise be in custodial care. And therefore, you know, we we leverage uh, you know extensive networks of, uh, of of specialists, right, to provide for that care. But even there, we're rethinking and reimagining, you know, how uh, you know how care is coordinated and provided, right? Uh, does a patient need to see you know a neurologist? every time an internist has a question about the patient, or can we uh, leverage e-consults, right, for a more, you know, effective, timely, and cost-effective approach? And the answer we have found is overwhelmingly yes. The most impressive thing I'm hearing here is your ability to actually implement change. On the federal government level, glaciers move faster. 
But I'm impressed with the fact that you're actually leveraging the dollars and making them actually result in measurable change in the patients that, that are receiving the benefit from those dollars. That's very, very impressive. The approach that we take is very deliberate in that not only is it important, I think, to be able to sort of, you know, demonstrate that that you are tangibly moving the needle at the level of the of the patient, right? You know, at the, at the individual level, it's that's critical because that's where the learnings happen. The operationalization of, you know, any new delivery model or any approach, right? You know, the rubber beats the road, you know, on the patient outcome. And so by focusing there in some elements of our work, it grounds everything where it should be grounded which is, is the patient better off? Is their family better off, right? You know, are we achieving better health at lower costs and doing it in a way that we can measure? But we don't stop there. That experience, I think, confers a tremendous amount of credibility when you start engaging at a state level or a federal level around policy or broader, you know, system level projects to transform how healthcare is delivered. Because you bring with you the perspective of the patient, the actual lived experience that you can point to and talk about, but you also bring with you the credibility of the learnings from the school of hard knocks, falling in the potholes, uh, so to say, and putting your initials in them and then looking out for them uh, moving forward. And I think there's um, there's a lot of wonky policy, you know, shops uh, in in Washington within within the Beltway, but we try to couple the expertise, you know, of of policy research with that lived experience, those learnings, uh, you know, that human perspective uh, to ensure. That is, we're advancing, you know, whether it's a health system project, right, you know, around a geriatric emergency department or a federal policy on how we think about, you know, paying for insulin, uh, that we're bringing the applied human experience with us and the perspective of how things will actually be operationalized and, you know, what are the intended consequences and what could be some of the unintended consequences. And it's really that approach that goes everywhere from, you know, 10 foot, right, uh, above the ground to the 25,000 or 50,000 foot approach of federal policy uh, that I think, you know, differentiates this organization. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Tim West, president of West Health. Tim, I think we all have a very good understanding now of how the foundation, the institute, and the policy center interact with each other. You live by nine principles for effective grant making. Uh, so I'd love you to weave your nine principles into describing for us everything we need to know about this pharma initiative. Sure. So Larry, I, I can I can list them very quickly for for those that are that are joining, and then I think it's best to you know illustrate them in how they you know actually get deployed right in 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 projects. And uh, you know I think the the hopefully the theme that has come across in the discussion so far right is we're looking to move the needle right, and we're looking to move the needle and you know in a in a time frame that we can all witness, not 10 years from now, 20 years from now, there are some, you know, there are some critical needs for patients that need to be addressed uh, in terms of, you know, their access in the system, equity, the affordability. Uh, and the good news is 
there's a lot, while there's a lot that goes right in healthcare in America, there's some low hanging fruit, right, that we can get at uh, to bend. And so we really do think from the very beginning of, uh, you know, ensuring that our work is grounded in some things that will ensure that we're deploying our resources where they can be maximally impactful. So these principles that you mentioned come from learnings of the leadership team through, you know, the the work that we do here and the work that we've done on the for-profit, non-profit, you know, various settings. And so some of them are, are addressing a mission critical need. And we've talked about successful aging, benefiting seniors. That's what we do. And it's important to ensure that everything that we do is grounded in that mission and that we're not, you know, veering from that. Right. Gary and Mary are visionaries. They've identified an area that philanthropy is well positioned to make an impact on. And that's the core of everything. From there, we really start thinking about, as I said, you know, number two, do we have a lasting impact? Number three, can we achieve those results very quickly? Right. Number four, are we fostering cross-sector collaboration? You know, one of the low-hanging fruits in in healthcare uh, is breaking the silos. Uh, we we historically have a very siloed approach to managing you know really anything in medicine, right? And so the independence that we have allows us to think about cross-sector. We can't do things on our own. So number five, establishing long partnerships that can be leveraged not just for individual projects, uh, but to develop you know themes and momentum over time. Number six. Six, leveraging institutional insights and furthering our learnings. Our team is our greatest asset. And as I said, the foundation deploys smart dollars. We don't just grant them out. We take the dollars and they flow through the West Health Institute. They flow through the West Health Policy Center, really leveraging the institutional insights of the tremendous leadership team and the project teams that we have. Number seven, demonstrating an opportunity for sustainable growth. One of the things that is uh, really challenging, I think, in the foundation slash philanthropy world is sometimes projects will never be successful but for philanthropic funding. We don't do them. So if something can't have an ROI, they can't hunt on its own, absent the philanthropy over time, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not a good project for someone else. It's just not something that we take on. And so that that seventh principle is, is, is really key. And then the final two, number eight is a commitment to transparency. As a nonprofit, we, we share freely everything that we do. We share freely you know, our perspective on what we're trying to achieve. Our research, we freely give away. We want people to benefit uh, from our learnings. Uh, it's it's, you know, we're, we're not, uh, you know, trying to accrue intellectual capital that's trying to be monetized. We're trying to accrue intellectual capital that's reshaping, reimagining, and disrupting healthcare. And that brings me to the final principle, which is number nine, that we're rethinking and disrupting the status quo through innovation. And I think here, the innovation term uh, really needs uh, a little bit of explanation. You know, when, when many think of innovation in, in science, they think of new drugs and biologics and new medical devices. We think more about the innovation on the delivery side, right? Mm -hmm. You know, taking the resources that we have today and perhaps redistributing them or tweaking them in some ways uh, that, that can uh, have very meaningful impact uh, on, on outcomes. And that approach really then contributes to all of the principles that I've talked about, right? In terms of our requirements of timeline and sustainability, et cetera, where we're not subject to these abject failure, right? Of discovery, we're, we're focused on the, the innovations uh, and redistributing uh, the things that are that are that lie in front of us. I, I think one of the the best examples, right, of of how this uh, all comes together uh, is a few years back. Our foundation partnered with uh, two other foundations, Arnold Ventures, uh, as well as uh, the Peterson Center for uh, Healthcare and Seven Health Systems, to stand up a generic pharmaceutical company, which was called Civica RX. 
that model was looking to solve, you know, initially a real problem that existed for inpatient uh, drugs in that we have these shortages that often come up for inpatient in- injectables that are that are generic. And the, the reason for those shortages, one that, you know, sometimes there's not multiple sources of supply. And so something happens to, to one manufacturer. And if you only have one, you end up with a, a shortage, which can have tremendous uh, impacts on patients, uh, but they can also have tremendous financial consequences. There was a shortage a few years back of, of norepinephrine, uh, which use, is used for shock. Uh, and when, when you look at the financial impact, billions of dollars associated with that shortage. When there are shortages, there can be predatory pricing. And so there's market failures that, that, that exist. And so the idea was to bring together, you know, some initial seed funding from foundations and some seed funding from health systems to stand up an independent organization that that wasn't beholden to the historical sort of market forces, right, mm-hmm. of the injectable generic drug base. And Civica was formed. It now serves, I'd say, north of 50% of the hospital beds uh, in this country through its 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 membership, has north of 100 uh, products, and really has... Uh, significantly sort of disrupted the inpatient injectable space and made, you know, a tremendous, uh, you know, impact on the the, the shortages uh, that that occur across the U.S. But they didn't stop there, right? And so when I said, well, you know, you you need a relentless dissatisfaction of the status quo, you need to disrupt the status quo. And so the entity of Civico, with the assistance of, you know, our team at the Institute, as well as the health systems, said there are bigger problems that we need to tackle, perhaps that will benefit patients. Uh, and the Civica announced uh, several years ago that they would be pursuing an insulin program, a biosimilar insulin program, uh, which continues to pr- progress. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be filing for approval in, in 2025 for three insulin products uh, that will be marketed, you know, marketed somewhere around $35. That's not $35 copay. That's $35 wow. total cost to the system, which is, uh, is is certainly something that will benefit patients, but will also uh, benefit, you know, the, the overall healthcare spending in, in this in, in the US. And I think that that example really illustrates, you know, how just over a few years, we can, you know, demonstrate some of these pr- principles, achieving, you know, a, a real impact, doing that quickly, doing it in a way that doesn't require additional philanthropy to sustain itself. Civica uh, will be returning some of the dollars to the foundations so that they can be redeployed for other public good. I'm going to I'm going to end it on what you just spoke about because that just is a perfect example of how philanthropic funding can be utilized to impact real change and then establish a sustainable solution that goes forward and then feeds back into the philanthropic world. Thank you very much for being on the show today, Tim. And uh, have a great set of holidays and keep doing what you're doing. You really are impacting change. Thank you, Larry. It was great to be here. It takes a village. And these are um, these are important issues that we tackle. Literally, lives depend on it. Well, thanks to Tim and thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can access our podcast and most all of the podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, others. Learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com. Lend your voice to the conversation on X at HC Now Radio and follow us on Twitter at SonarMB. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.